On this week's show, I talk musicals with critic Kat Brown, who reveals a surprise favourite. It's Michelle Pfeiffer singing Cool Rider whilst sitting atop a stepladder for no apparent reason. It's the cheesiness, it's the genuinely, authentically awful teenagers. And it's so much fun. It's so much fun. Plus a deep dive into the wonderful Pitch Perfect and the inside track on the a cappella life from a couple of real-life Barden Bellas. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith, and today we're talking about the 2012 film Pitch Perfect, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. The musical comedy stars Anna Kendrick as Becca, a cynical student who joins a campus a cappella group. All right, ladies, it's now or never. Hands in! One, two, four! Now the Bunny Bellas! Well, the Bellas tonight are making history as the first ever all-female group to advance to the ICCA final. That's right, John. Now, why do you think it's taken so long for an all-lady group to break through that a cappella glass ceiling? Well, Gail, the women typically cannot hit the low notes, which really round out an arrangement, thrill the judges, and that can really hurt them in competition. Women are about as good at a cappella as they are at being doctors. My first guest is Kat Brown. She's a freelance journalist who covers talking points in TV, film and books for The Telegraph, for Pilot and for Grazia, as well as across BBC Radio and TV. Welcome to Girls on Film, Cat. Thank you so much for having me. I've been hoping that one day I'd make this hallowed seat and I'm delighted to be here at last. <laughs> Bless you. Well, I'm delighted to have you. And the reason I thought of you for this episode, among many other reasons, you're a illustrious journalist, of course. But we have done quite a bit of karaoke together, haven't we, in the past? The best. And I'm still devastated that after pr- the best part of a decade of having done karaoke with you, Anna, that I'm still not even one third as good as you are. Oh, shut That up. is basically my aim for life. <laughs> that is not true at all. I'm trying to think what kind of duets we've done, but they they're lots of female singers, I think, which plays into what we're talking about today. But yeah, happy times. And I hope we can get back into a karaoke booth again one day. And am I right in thinking you're also in a choir? Were you in a choir? I was, yes. I was... <laughs> Actually, this is perfect, given the film that we're going to discuss. I was in an a cappella pop choir uh, for a good few years in London, but then left fairly suddenly because it all just sort of turned into a sort of, not like a cheerocracy or a cheer-tatorship, but it just all got a little bit too much. But I loved it when I was in it. And there is just nothing like the feeling of singing together or performing together with a group of people that you know really well and trust and have you know really put the hours in with it's fantastic well we're talking to a couple of acapella singers in the rest of this episode actually which will be very interesting to hear but meantime let's talk a little bit from the critical perspective pitch perfect i'm assuming you're a fan of the film tell me your general feelings about it i watched this again recently not even for the podcast but just because i absolutely love it and 
Uh, it's sort of a little bit depressing, actually, in the year of our Lord 2020, that there are still relatively few films that capture not just female friendship, but the idiosyncrasies of being a woman as brilliantly as Pitch Perfect does. The arguments, the conversations, the really random sort of little tangents that everything takes. Yes, lots of it has been brilliantly written by Kay Cannon, and you really get her sort of 30 rock background coming in there in the absurdity. But it also just completely nails a very particular part of just being female in in whichever way that manifests itself. It's also brilliant in terms of the music. It's fab in terms of shining a light on a completely bizarre, but also very charming aspect of American collegiate life, that sort of acapella world, which, you know, to a certain extent is here over in the UK, but is obviously really done with gusto over in the States. And it's just so affectionate, but it sends it up. And it is just, if you have the slightest interest in music, choral singing, or just, you know, having a lovely time, I just think it's wonderful. Well said. And I must say, yeah, I mean, they have me from the first scene. As soon as you see people coming together and singing in harmony, but also combined with that humour that you mentioned, it's quite irreverent. There's some quite, actually quite edgy humour and some quite farcical humour in this. I'm interested in you um, talking about the female characters and their interactions with each other. Is there an example you can give me of a scene or a moment where you feel the interaction between the women felt particularly credible and familiar? Oh, hugely. Uh, In the sort of third act of the film, the Bellas have had a massive bust up. Uh, Becca Mitchell, played by a wonderful Anna Kendrick, has been booted out for daring to take decisions into her own hands during a live performance. And so the rest of the Bellas are basically having a complete argument and nightmare. And uh, Anna Camp from True Blood, who plays Aubrey Posen, the leader of the choir, has just been violently sick and everybody's just having a great big fight and a bust up and squabbling. But whilst they're being violently sick to the extent that Hannah Mae Lee's wonderful, very strange singer Lily is sort of making snow angels in it, that obviously wouldn't necessarily happen in real <laughs> life. But that conversation between the women, the the arguing but not just sort of going straight for the jugular, that is something that only really good friends do because Otherwise, you just don't and you're just very passive aggressively polite and you might go to the bar afterwards and sort of dark mutterings might occur. (laughs) But I really loved that. I thought even though obviously it ends in the most absurd way, that was just absolutely brilliant. Good choice. I thought that when I watched that scene, I mean, it really tackles something inherently feminine and very realistic, albeit within a sort of absurdly comic format. I'm interested in the beginning of the film as well in terms of the relationships between the women and the way that Anna Camp's character kind of starts to begin to soften quite early actually because you have the scene where people are sort of coming along at the group fair, isn't it, to see what clubs you might want to join and obviously the Bellas are there semi-auditioning people and checking them out and there's a reference to bikini-ready bodies. Um, (laughs) The the idea that that these girls not only have to have fantastic voices but also be tiny skinny little things and then of course rebel wilson bounds into this scenario and Brittany snows chloe goes hey let's give her a go and you can see anna camp's character just kind of softening slightly amidst this wonderfully warm funny figure of rebel wilson's character and i think right there it's starting to challenge her bias and to show that the bellas are going to go on a journey and kind of start to confront the prejudice that is within them hi can you sing yeah Can you read music? Yeah. Can you match pitch? Try me. Uh, 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 
That was a really good start. <laughs> I'm the best singer in Tasmania with teeth. Love it. What's your name? Fat Amy. Um, you call yourself Fat Amy? Yeah, so twig bitches like you don't do it behind my back. I think also it's very clear during the film that Aubrey, God lover, has got absolutely no idea of who she is. We see this very literally right at the end of the film when she literally takes her hair down and you're like, you do you, Aubrey, well done. <laughs> but we get these awful snippets of her her relationship with her dad, who sounds like a complete military psychopath. And then, of course, the previous leader that she takes over from, the previous leader of the Bellas, is that absolute stereotype girl who basically doesn't like other women at all, doesn't like anybody to think that they could possibly be in charge and just spends all her time bullying people into withering submission. And obviously, Aubrey takes on some of these characteristics herself because it's all she's known when she becomes leader. But luckily, she has her co-leader, Chloe, brilliantly played by Brittany Snow, who lots of Hairspray musical fans will recognise as uh, Amber Von Tussle, playing a much nicer character yes, here, much but still nicer. with the pipes of the angels. And yeah, that's a really interesting journey. How do you think the music reflects the character's journey? Because obviously there's a lot about Becca's character coming and shaking things up, making it more modern, kind of breaking down barriers. Do you think that's well done in the way all the routines kind of progress under her influence, really? Looking at it now, it's obviously very 2012. Whilst some of it still feels timeless and wonderful and relevant, there are some really shocking, quite sort of gasp-making treatment of, of various people that hopefully would just not be in a film today. But also that music is still very much of its time, that sort of mid-2000s, you've got a bit of LaRue. It's that sort of move from the very clear, angelic adaptation of Ace of Bass, which in itself is very 90s and would be passe even today and then sort of moving into these lovely sort of mix-ups bringing in a bit of Jesse J who was absolutely enormous at the time that Pitch Perfect was made and also just crucially bringing in beatboxing bringing in all these in deeply inverted commas unfeminine ways of singing and we see that by the fact that they start off the Barden Bellas looking like a group of air hostesses and very much as though they could be cabin crew in the old days where cabin crew had to adhere to being a certain height, not above a certain weight, not have any visible tattoos and not just look very different. And when in the end, the wonderful Motley crew that they get really is a sort of a choir of all the talents, if you like. Absolutely. And are there any fave moments of the musical side? I mean, I, I love the fact that this is kind of a magical world where everyone can sing. You know, when they're at the fair, everyone they ask to sing, they have no idea, but magically they can. But are there any particular moments that have just harmonised for you? Oh, my God. Beautifully so. Thank you, Anna. Great pun. Um, Any time that Esther Dean is on the screen fills me with joy, even though obviously her character Cynthia Rose as the sole black woman and sole lesbian of the choir is perhaps not necessarily given the most kind screen time. Yeah. There's a lot of... Yeah, I had no idea at the time until obviously I went into my Pitch Perfect fan Google hole that she basically wrote so many excellent songs for Rihanna and Katy Perry that she basically became like a, a single-handed hit factory. And there is a time during the rip-off when she is singing S&M by Rihanna, which is a really, really lovely moment. But also she is such a multi-talented singer. She can rap, she's got a beautiful belt, she can do really fabulous sort of like head voice singing. And 
and um, and she's also just an amazing performer. But I also love that because she hadn't really acted before at that time, that her sort of awkwardness is completely credible because she's surrounded by professional actors. There's a couple of ringers making up the Bellas as well in terms of like not quite professional a cappella singers, but certainly people who've done an awful lot of it. And I just really like the fact that she is therefore completely convincing as somebody breaking into this pretty white world of a cappella singing and just absolutely nailing it. It's fantastic. Na 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 come on. Na 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 come on. Come on. Come on. Do you think that's one of the reasons her role is small or do you think it is a little bit tokenistic? Well, I think all the roles are small apart from the leads. It's just I think we notice it more with Cynthia Rose because she's always getting stick for being a closeted lesbian. And I don't know, that kind of behaviour of sort of going, yeah, we know you're going to say you're a lesbian. We know you're going to say you're a lesbian. That feels very high schoolish. And that just sort of felt quite disappointing that that was happening. A little bit like Fat Amy right at the beginning when they're at the groups fair and she's at the DJ stand and then she's basically taking the piss out of the Deaf Jews, um, which is the actual DJ society, which is like a really nice fun joke. But the way that she treats it, I can't remember what my response was, you know, when I first saw it. I was probably just so thrilled that here was a funny film with women being funny and music that I didn't notice. But I do notice it now, and those two things are are really quite jarring. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's relatively recent in my mind. I certainly remember going to the press screening and really enjoying it. But now, watching it back, I've noted down quite un-PC humour at points in my notes here, you know, and I think that's one of the things that I was referring to. But I think it's, yeah, it's like anything we talk about here, it's important to think about when it was made. And actually, it makes me think how far we've come in a relatively short space of time. The fact that that is now standing out to us and it didn't stand out to us then. Absolutely. But it's still an extremely fun watch. And I think, would you say it's a feminist film? Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of that is down to Elizabeth Banks as well, who obviously produced this, directed the sequel. Not a very good sequel. I quite liked the sequel, actually. (sighs) You know, it gave me Dawn from Buffy the Vampire Slayer vibes when um, Hayley Steinfeld, I've completely just mispronounced her name. (laughs) Steinfeld? Yeah. That's it. Thank you. Anyway, when she rocks up as the sort of potential legacy, I was just like, but I don't want to see you. I want to focus on Becca and everybody. But no, I think any bit with Elizabeth Banks as well, one of the a cappella commentators is fantastic. And obviously she has amazing repartee with John Michael Higgins as her co-commentator. But then it all sort of comes to a head at the end when he says something completely appalling and she's just like, well, you're a terrible misogynist, aren't you, John? So there we go. So a lot of the humour is, is very much done in a very knowing sense, which I suppose is why the two examples of the deaf Jewish boys and Cynthia Rose's treatment as a lesbian sort of stands out a lot more on reviewing because the rest of the film still stands up so fantastically. I mean, also, and obviously we're focusing on the women, but the boys are just absolutely fantastic. Adam Devine is that ghastly bumper. Absolutely brilliant. Loved his work in Modern Family as well in a very, very different role. And then Ben Platt, who, that was sort of his his breakout, really. Skylar Aston as well. And Skylar yeah. Aston as well. I couldn't take my 
eyes off his upper lip. It's the most extraordinary <laughs> shape. It looks like it was hewn from marble. But yeah, absolutely brilliant. Love and Anukash Ambutkar as well um, as Donald, who is just a legendary beatboxer and also gives attitude for days. Fantastic casting all round. Was there anything else you wanted to highlight about Pitch Perfect before we move on to other fun musical stuff? Yeah, I think it's an example of a film being so insanely underrated before it's even been made. I mean, it was made on the like tiny, tiny budget, like $17 million, which obviously is not tiny, but in the grand scheme of things absolutely is. But it's that thing of if you know that there is an audience for a film and you can just find a studio who will let you make it, then provided that the film is good and, and all the writing and the performances are there, you will reap the reward. And my God, they did. They got 115 million at the box office for this film and then launched two indifferent to good sequels. And the whole franchise has made over half a billion dollars, which is extraordinary when you think, oh, but it's about acapella. That's so niche. But yes, as we've seen with books, for example, you look at the bestseller list and you're always going to see a book written by an Instagram star or somebody. And you're like, who the hell's that? And you're like, well, their niche, their audience rocketed them to the top. And we really saw that with Pitch Perfect. But also in this case, the niche was women who were always (laughs) forgotten as an audience sector Give women more funny films. We will go and see them many times in some cases. (laughs) Very true. Talking of films people have seen many times that might be considered underrated, I happen to know that one of your favourite films is Grease 2. I love it so much. Oh, my God. Now, I have to caveat that... Grease 2 was a film that I first saw when I was 10, which is also the same age that a lot of people see The Goonies. I know that a lot of people see Grease 2 in their later years and go, what the hell, Catherine, this is the worst film I've ever seen. To which point I have to say, do you know what? I saw The Goonies for the first time when I was 35 and I thought it sucked ass. (laughs) So maybe it's just that thing about having a childhood love of a film and that being connected. But Grease 2, bizarrely, has got the most amazing cult around it. The Yale Dramatic Society did a stage performance of it a few years ago. I remember seeing that they made like motorcycle handlebars out of coat hangers and torches attached to it, which is total theatre realness right there. (laughs) But also the Lucky Voice karaoke chain has got almost the entire Grease soundtrack there, apart from charades, which is just a generically dreadful, dreadful song, no matter how much you like the film. So it's not just me. It's also all the people that love Michelle Pfeiffer singing Cool Rider whilst sitting atop a stepladder for no apparent reason. It's the cheesiness. It's the genuinely, authentically awful teenagers. And it's so much fun. It's so much fun. When fun I'll be holding on time. Now, something I saw when I was about 10, I think I was lucky enough to see it on the stage in London, which you've also seen recently, My Fair Lady. (gasps) Gasp. Could have danced all night. Those outfits. Audrey Hepburn. What a dream. Just all of it. I mean, it's a beautifully crafted musical. Tell me more about why you love this one. I love it because it's such a surprise because I grew up 
doing lots of musical theatre as a sort of ambitiously thwarted creative teenager. And so we did a lot of youth theatre and obviously we sang a lot of songs from My Fair Lady because for some reason they're very popular with schools and with youth theatres. But I don't think I saw the film for years because, you know, unless I got it from Blockbuster and I obviously didn't have any money to get it from Blockbuster or it was on our family's like regular roster, we just didn't see it. So I basically watched Singing in the Rain about 56 times and didn't see My Fair Lady until I was about 27. And I think it is because it is such a beautifully produced film in terms of production design and again in terms of that absolutely impeccable casting. But it also is fantastic in terms of the script, in terms of how it deals with sort of flipping that Cinderella story right on its head because the person that ends up winning is is Audrey Hepburn's character, who my... How have I completely Eliza. just forgotten the name? Thank Eliza Doolittle. Elsa. I think it's because I'm wearing a Christmas jumper and I've got Let It Go in my head. Not Elsa, Eliza. Thank you. Well, it's a nice festive image. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but she knows who she is all the way through the film. She's only basically taking part in this insane project of Henry Higgins because she wants to set up a flower shop. And meeting Freddie, falling in love and all that sort of stuff is almost by the by because she has a cast iron sense of self and she isn't sort of manipulated in the way that Henry Higgins really hoped he could do. And he is so awful to Eliza, like all the way through the film. And his staff notice this, his friends notice this, his mother notices this. And the fact that he just sort of assumes that Eliza will just stay and do for him and, you know, trot out as like his little experiment for the rest of her life is very typical of the extreme egotism that he has. And it's kind of wonderful that A, she absolutely won't have it and B, just cracks on with the rest of her life. But then there is also that amazing moment at the races when dressed like an absolute dream, she absolutely <laughs> loses it and goes full on Cockney at the winning horse, which is a gorgeous moment. What does she say? Blooming ale, get a bleeding move on or something <laughs> like that, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah, so it's perfect. Brilliant. Proper, proper yeah. fishwife yelling. <laughs> Come on. So, gentlemen, prefer blondes you've also been watching again recently, which is a great one. Why do you love that one? This is actually stemming entirely from Instagram, because during lockdown, I've been following a lot of classic films, old films, old glamour accounts, just because there's something so incredibly cheering about Technicolor costume popping up on your screen instead of yet another BBC News update about the, the state of the pandemic. And actually, this was a film that I had heard loads about and I'd read the book and I just assumed that over the years I must have seen it and then it was by seeing these little clips on Instagram I realised to my absolute horror I had never seen Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and this was something that I needed to rectify PDQ so I rented it and just had the most glorious couple of hours the costumes are wonderful Jane Russell's fall into the swimming pool just being adopted as part of the film when it wasn't supposed to be is such a lovely lovely thing and again just Marilyn Monroe cooing around in a series of gorgeous frocks is endlessly hypnotic it's again that that sort of thing when the looks are so brilliant and the songs are so classic that you also forget about the dialogue and that is so snappy and so fun and again not edgy but just there's enough sort of potential 
danger or peril in it to make you go every now and then before you get to that happy ending. Just absolutely glorious. And those, again, those red costumes, perfect, perfect, perfect Christmas, even though it's not a Christmassy film. It's one of those ones that I watch again. I think I don't realise how influenced I have been in terms of my fashion choices on a, on a very good glamorous day by films like that. And absolutely extraordinary, it really is. I mean, everything there is what I, is my go-to ideal for red carpet. Remember when those used to happen? But you know, you are the most glamorous woman in film <laughs> Fleet Street, Anna. And I oh, actually, I am so gutted to not have been able to see you in full flight, as it were. Because actually, even when your glamour wattage is only sort of turned up to a sort of fairly low level, it's still absolutely fantastic. And yeah, watching Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, it was just that thing of going, these are fabulous gowns and I miss people who wear gowns. More to that. Well, I hope that soon we can all meet again in person wearing whatever we feel like wearing. In fact, I think I first met you at an awards ceremony. Was it the Empire Awards? I think I was probably banking every Empire Awards for the first sort of three that I went to because I was so young and so new and basically like a little Victorian chimney sweep who'd been allowed into the grown-ups house I spent basically trying to photobomb the celebrities so that I could check Getty the next day and see like my leg (laughs) behind the Harry Potter kids did it work it did I've got quite a wonderful collection of just me looking demure and definitely not misbehaving behind Terry Gilliam etc brilliant anything else you wanted to uh, mention that you're working on that we should know about any Christmas messages for the listeners oh well actually on a Christmassy note our Empire compatriot Helen O'Hara has just launched a new Christmas film specific podcast called Bar Humbug and I've just recorded a couple of episodes of that with her so that is a really good fun listen and I've recorded one as well so perfect let's let's all go and check it out it's going to be lots of fun yeah yes yes to women in film yes to women talking about film yes go Helen one of our favourite contributors and then just for Christmas I think because this has been such a hideous year Certainly me and a lot of my friends are really finding this drag towards Christmas even arguably more difficult than the previous nine months. And something that I found incredibly soothing is actually just going back and watching a lot of not Christmassy, but Christmassy feeling children's films. So I've just watched The Secret Garden, Hook, the Nanny McPhee films, rented those and just absolute heaven, particularly if you've got some sort of, you know, fairly boring admin or something to do. It's yeah, really, really great fun. That is a great shout. I love that. Nice bit of nostalgia for childhood. Brilliant. Well, Kat, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I hope to sing with you again soon. Meantime, also, please come back on the podcast because it's been an absolute delight to have you. Thank you, Anna. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. My next guests are members of a real-life uni a cappella group. The Decibels are Cardiff University's all-female a cappella team. They are two-time UK ICCA finalists, as well as the winners of Warwick's Open Acapella competition. Welcome to Jade Harvey and Gina Dunn. I can't keep quiet, no. Jade and Gina, welcome to Girls on Film. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Jade, first of all, you tell us about the Decibels. 
So the Decibels is Cardiff University's all-female a cappella group. We're one of five groups at the university. You're basically like the Bellas. This is what we're imagining. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Gina, what do you think is great about being in an all-female a cappella group specifically? Well, it's very much like having a second family away from home and just having loads of sisters. So it's not just about the singing. It's about having a unity and a sisterhood as well. Just like in Pitch Perfect. <laughs> Tell me about how the singing helps unify you as well, because certainly as someone that enjoys singing on an amateur level, I feel that you feel like you're bonding with people as you are singing with them, and as you are harmonising. Did you strengthen your bond to do that together? Yeah, definitely. Just the singing together and when you really get in tune with each other and in time with each other, because you realise you're making this amazing sound and you're bringing this amazing music to people. When you know how good it can sound, it's very motivating to sort of work towards that and make it as best as it can be for that feeling. So the group effort, the bonding, I love it. Jade, you mentioned to me before that Pitch Perfect actually inspired you to join an a cappella group, is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Sort of a few years after it came out because I sort of missed the, the train when it first came out. But all the kids at school were sort of doing the cup song. Yeah. And they were like, oh, do you know what this is? It's from Pitch Perfect. And so we watch it and my mind was open to this possibility that, wow, people can get together and do sort of modern singing all together. Because at the time I was in school, I was in choirs and stuff, but it was such a breath of fresh air to me. And it really got me into listening to pentatonics and all of that. I followed their journey. I watched all their YouTube videos. I tried transcribing some of their arrangements because I sort of became a bit obsessed. Brilliant. And now the dreams come true. Yeah, and now I'm, and now I'm here <laughs> in my own sort of Barn Bellas group in Cardiff. And it's honestly insane. <laughs> Gina, tell me, how true to life is Pitch Perfect compared to the experience that you guys are having at university? Well, actually, I went to an American university last year oh. and I'd say in America, it's pretty true to how it is. Um, it's slightly different, I reckon, in Cardiff. Similar in the fact that we enter the same competition that they do and we have similar audition processes and the choreography as well. That's something that's really strong. I found, though, when I was in, in America, the experience was just like the movie. <laughs> in, in what respect? I'm curious. Just the way that it's kind of outlined, like the strictness of the rules there. So you know how they do their oath that they have to abide by, otherwise their vocal cords will get ripped out by wolves or whatever it is. <laughs> um, it kind of felt a bit like that when I was in the States. We had to all read through like this, this maybe six page document that was like all these rules that we had to follow. And it was just the intensity Wow. And are you guys a little bit more relaxed in Cardiff, would you say? I mean, <laughs> especially with the current situation that shall not be named. I'd like to think we keep some sort of intensity and drive in learning arrangements and putting out content. But generally, if this was any other year, we'd normally rehearse twice a week for about three hours. Two and a half. Well, that sounds pretty thorough to me. Like, even in the scene in the movie, they're like, we rehearse seven days a week. I don't remember quite what the quote was, but I remember hearing that and was like, no, <laughs> we have degrees as well. <laughs> yeah, you have degrees and presumably you want to go out and have fun as well. Of course. Where can people find out more about the Decibels and hear you sing? Well, we have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and we also have a YouTube channel. Most of them are CU 
underscore decibels or just the decibels. We'll put it all in the show notes so people can have a good listen because I've enjoyed watching some of your videos. You guys are great, by the way. Thank you so and I much. wish I'd done something like that when I was a student. It's such a good use of your time. Now, I take it you're both fans of musicals in all their various forms. And I wanted to ask you what other musicals you'd been watching. Gina, you first. Yeah, um, so I'm a massive fan of musicals. I actually recently watched once for the first time, which was beautiful. I loved everything about it. And I can't believe it took me this long to watch it. And I've also been watching Rock of Ages, which I've seen probably too many times, but it's epic. <laughs> I do have a soft spot for Rock of Ages, even though it's sort of kind of massively cheesy. It's a lot of fun. There's so much energy, isn't there? Yeah. Jade, what have you been catching up with? Any other favourite musicals? Well, apart from all the other classics like Phantom, Hamilton, all the big ones, I had to watch once again. I had to watch it twice. It was just so bittersweet and seeing the journey of creating music and knowing what goes into it the recording the effort that everyone has to put into it it made me think about when we were recording our EP long days just (laughs) in a room like having people come in do their part and seeing it all sort of pieced together it's that journey and it just reminded me of that if people haven't seen once how would you describe the story well There are sections where it's just song and it's all this non-verbal storytelling, which I think is quite fascinating. But the songs sort of carry through the narrative. You have this busker. Guy, the busker, yeah. Yeah, who's just trying to create original music. And then he meets this girl and they just, it's just a chance encounter. They start talking and then it's when they go to the music shop for me and they start playing Falling Slowly on the piano. And he teaches her the chords. And I was just so engrossed at that moment. I was like, yes, harmonise. Yes, I'm here for it. Who'd you write this song for? She's gone. She's dead? No, she's not dead. He's gone. I used to play in the orchestra back at home. You don't want to go for a walk or something, huh? Take this and it home. Still got Raise your voice. You want to stay? I have to go now. Yeah, it's a lovely film. I must see that again. I haven't seen it for ages. It's a great shout. Anything else to add on Pitch Perfect? Just the fact that like the girls come out on top. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) That it's a girls group against a boys group and the girls come out on top, which is, you know, that's kind of what's been happening with us. Not to toot our own horn. (laughs) But... Congratulations. Well done. Of the Cardiff groups, yeah. (laughs) Love it. So you're trouncing the boys. Good work. We'll keep doing that, ladies. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Jade and Gina, thank you both so much for coming along to Girls on Film. Oh, thank Thank you you. so much. My final guest is Charlie Stone, who is in many bands, including our house band, MX Tyrants. And she's also officially my oldest friend. Welcome, Charlie. 
Hi, Anna. So, yeah, we should explain oldest friend doesn't mean that we're ancient. We've just known each other longer than we've known anywhere else, right? <laughs> yeah, you're my <laughs> oldest close friend, the one that I've known for the longest period of time. Yes, and I like the way you generally qualify that when you introduce me at parties, so I thought I'd do the same. <laughs> um, now, I've asked you on because you are releasing a Christmas single that has a film theme and I reckon a feminist message. Tell us more about that. Yeah, the song's called Merry Christmas Actually. And it's directly inspired by a particular scene in the film Love Actually, which presumably many people listening to this will be familiar with. But in case not, all you need to know basically is that there's a guy that's become infatuated with his best friend's wife. And he feels that the most appropriate way to deal with this is to turn up on her doorstep unannounced at Christmas with a series of placards on which he's written out this declaration of love which is all sort of couched in a kind of like, I know I can't expect anything, I'm not asking you to leave him, but if you get fed up with him, I'm your knight in shining armour. And I kind of think he kind of sees himself as a Sir Lancelot figure, I think. He thinks he's being very chivalrous and very romantic. And the song that I've written is told from his point of view, but with an awareness that that's what he's doing, that he's basically idealised her to the point that he's denying her any agency in this. He's just kind of put her on a pedestal and just as he can't touch her, there's a sense that whatever he says to her, she's not going to be touched by. And I think that's the thing that annoys me about this scene, well, this film in general and this particular scene. We don't see any fallout from this. We were expected to believe that, you know, Kira Knightley's character is just going to stand there and listen to this and kind of smile indulgently I think, oh, that's nice. Someone else is in love with me. <laughs> and go back inside and it's completely unaffected her. <laughs> it's so true. And the way she just sort of goes out and gives him an affectionate sort of kiss <laughs> and then runs off and that's the end of it. But also I always think that he, what a terrible, terrible best friend he is. Yeah. As well as having this idealised view of women. And the two things combined make him deeply unattractive, despite it being Andrew Lincoln. And it's just like, this is a bit of a pattern, I think, in Richard Curtis movies, which I sort of half love. A lot of them I really, really do enjoy. And there are aspects of love, actually, I really enjoy, including You Gaunt Dancing Around. But <laughs> there are other aspects that just make my skin crawl with this kind of very myopic view of how women behave. And it's very much from, as you suggest, and as it comes into the song, it's from a man's point of view who's just thinking about how he feels. He's not thinking about how she feels at all. Exactly. I don't have any issue with films that come from a very particular kind of male perspective. I mean, obviously, there's a problem historically that so many of the films that we've seen over the decades have been from that white male viewpoint. But I do have an issue here with the fact that it's not even acknowledged. You know, we don't see any fallout from what happens there, which to me suggests that the whole thing comes from that blinkered viewpoint. There are a couple of choice lines you can give us from the song and maybe we'll play them as well to demonstrate what you're talking about here. I quote Dante Gabriel Rossetti in the middle of this song. There's a poem, I think it's called The Kiss, which is this kind of very idealised idea of a woman and he's he's talking about being a child beneath her touch and he's kind of longing for her to respond to him. So I've got you know this character quoting that because I think he sees himself in that romantic way and then towards the end of the song, I've got it saying, um, it's really no big deal, so please don't tell. I just wanted to say Merry Christmas, actually. I think it's that thing where, where you know, someone will just 
plant this kind of emotional bomb and then when they see they're not getting the desired effect or the really deep down long for effect will just be oh it's nothing though really you know this can be between you and me we don't have to talk about this and that's that he's just got it all out of his system and she's just left there having to deal with it time with a lot of people because I've, I've read online a lot of people think that scene is creepy and we'd love to hear from our listeners who also have issues with that scene even if they enjoy watching love actually at christmas in a cozy kind of way charlie is there anything else you will be watching this festive season rather than love actually <laughs> well actually i am going to be re-watching edward scissorhands and that's as a direct result of listening to one of the podcasts in the girls on film series actually where you talked about it and i remember what a wonderful film that is i mean it's so christmassy and so beautiful but it is also it's interesting to watch it again as an older person and realise how much it is about middle-aged women as well as about this kind of gothic character who can't hold the thing he loves, you know. So that, and I'll also want to be watching Swallows and Amazons and The Railway Children again because I think after the year we've had, I just want something comforting that reminds me of feeling very safe and cosy in front of the fire when I was a child, basically. That's so funny because our guest Kat Brown also on this episode said the same thing, watching childhood classics. I think we all need some warm and fuzzy classics. Mm. That's a great shout. Thank you so much for coming on Girls on Film. I'm glad that we finally got your voice on. Obviously, we have your music on every week, but it's lovely to have you on as a guest, Charlie. Thank you so much. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thanks, Anna. And Merry Christmas, actually. (laughs) And to you too. That was Charlie Stone. Merry Christmas actually is available on Amazon, Apple Music and other music platforms or you can listen to it and download it direct at Charlie's Bandcamp page. It's at charlie with an ey stone.bandcamp.com. You can watch Pitch Perfect on Prime Video now as well as Once and Rock of Ages and also it's not a musical but it's worth your time. It's called I'm Your Woman and it's directed by Julia Hart. It stars Rachel Brosnahan and Arinze Kenny. It's a 70s set crime drama about a woman who's forced to go on the run. And talking of women, I'm absolutely loving Wonder Woman 1984 which I will be raving about in a future episode. Girls on Film is brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, producer Jane Long, assistant producer Heather Dempsey, intern Eliana Jay and Amazon Prime Video, our partners for this episode. You can follow us and message us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can find all the details in the episode description. We also have a Patreon page. Go to patreon.com forward slash girls on film podcast. If you can't afford Patreon, then you can also support us by subscribing. It won't cost you anything and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. 
You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Jade Harvey and Gina Dunn from The Decibels and by Charlie Stone and Kat Brown. We'll be back very soon. Meantime, stay safe. Nothing makes a woman feel more like a girl than a man who sings like a boy. Dance floor acting nice.